You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking rates and lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. This is Rico Mohammed coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. This is the Rates and Lanes podcast, and tonight, our special guest is Mr. Henry Seaton. We're going to dub this episode with Mr. Seaton called Hanging with Hank. Uh, so if you have any legal questions, any transportation legal questions whatsoever, go ahead and press number one on your uh, dial pad. That'll put you right in the queue, and we'll get to you as quickly as we possibly can. We want to try to get through all your calls tonight, get your questions answered. But with no further ado, we're going to jump right into what the podcast is all about, and that's some rates and lanes. And we're going to start off with the DAT trend line for this week. And the capacity expanded 3.6%. Last week on the spot market and freight availability slipped 5%. National average rates held steady for vans, while reefer rates rose one cent, and flatbed rates declined two cents compared to the previous week. So there's a little bit of fluctuation and change going on in the marketplace. Let's go ahead and dig down a little bit deeper into these numbers. For the week of October 5th through the 11th, van truck load capacity added 3.4% last week as freight availability declined 5%. The resulting load-to-truck ratio slipped from 3.3 to 3.1. Still kind of teetering right on the brink for dry vans of that magical being above that 3 uh, three to one ratio on a national average. Um, September van demand was up. The national ratio averaged three point two in September as a seasonal a seasonal decline of four point nine percent compared to August and a thirteen percent above the level of September two thousand thirteen. Both low post and truck post increased on both month over month and year over year basis. Let's get into some rates for the U.S. vans. And the national average rate for vans remained steady at $2.03 per mile last week. Rates have remained above $2 per mile for most of 2014. Trip around the country, the average rate coming out of the east was $1.94 on average in the Philadelphia market. Atlanta showing at $2.06 per mile on average. Chicago coming in at $2.27. $2.27 per mile on average. Dallas shows $1.76. And Los Angeles rounds out the West Coast at $2.24 per mile. Jumping over quickly to U.S. flatbed demand. Flatbed capacity added 4.7%, and load availability declined 2.5% last week for a 6.9 decline in the load-to-truck ratio. The ratio is now 25.9 loads per truck. So we're starting to see a little bit of that uh, high demand for flatbeds is starting to come back down to earth a little bit, but that's still um, 25.9 loads per truck is still uh, a really, really great market to be in, if you ask me. Uh, Flatbed ratio up year over year. Uh, low volume declined 12% for flatbeds in September compared to August. 
and capacity increased 5.6, dropping the load-to-truck ratio by 16%. The ratio rose 71% compared to September 2013, however, due largely to increased demand. Flatbed rates, see what the rates are doing for this uh, past week. Flatbed rates gave up two cents last week, returning to a national average of $2.40 per mile. Half of the decline was due to a reduction in fuel surcharge. Rates dropped five cents in September. The national average rate for flatbed sales five cents in September to $2.38 compared to August of 2013. However, flatbed rates rose 22 cents per mile. Uh, trip around the country again, starting out in the Northeast Corridor, Harrisburg, PA. Rings in at $3.65 per mile on average. Atlanta shows a $2.69 per mile on average. Rock Island showing $3.14 per mile on average. Houston, Texas, $3.02 per mile on average. Phoenix, Arizona, rounds out at $2.08 per mile. Going over into the reefer, the U.S. reefer demand, reefer capacity increased. 3.4% last week, and freight availability lost 9%, dropping the load-to-truck ratio to t- from 12% to 8.7. Reefer demand continues to be strong for the season, and September ratio slips 11%. The monthly average ratio for September for September's loss was 11% seasonally to July levels of 9 after a surprising uptick in August, compared to September 2013, the load to truck ratio was up 3.6% last month. Reefer capacity has strengthened on both month-over-month and year-over-year basis, but demand varies seasonally and also, uh, of course, by your location. Rates. The rates in the reefer market, the national average rate for reefers rose one step last week, on average to $2.29 per mile, despite a one-cent decline in the fuel surcharge. Elizabeth, New Jersey, starts us out around on our trip around the country at $2.43 per mile on average. Lakeland, Florida, shows a $1.47 per mile on average. Green Bay, Wisconsin, comes in at $3.13 per mile on average. McAllen, Texas, shows a $1.70 per mile average. And Fresno rounds out at $2.19 per mile on average. Reefer rates rose five cents in September to a national average of $2.33 per mile compared to a sub-team rate finished 23 cents higher. So, real quick, we'll talk about the USDA truck market report. There are only two markets that are showing a shortage. You might want to be looking at, and those two markets are Idaho, Merrill County, Oregon, and Columbia Basin, Washington. Those are the only two markets that are showing a shortage. Uh, San Luis Valley, Colorado shows a slight shortage. Upper Valley, Twin Falls, Burley District, Idaho shows a slight shortage. Michigan is showing a shortage. They're moving onions out of Michigan, Minnesota, and North Dakota, showing a slight shortage. Eastern North Carolina shows a slight shortage, and Nebraska is showing a slight shortage. 
So those are some things real quickly, uh, wrapping up a little bit on the rates. And we're going to jump over now and get ready to bring on Mr. Seaton. Mr. Seaton is a uh, attorney with the Seaton and Huss law, firm, law Offices. They are a transportation law firm specializing in regulatory compliance, cargo claims, freight charge collection, commercial litigation, and related bankruptcy matters. Using a network of attorneys specializing in transportation law, Seaton and Husk provides litigation services throughout the continental United States and Canada for its clients. So if you ever need anyone to call on, if you have an issue, uh, please go and uh, support Mr. Seaton. They have a website. It's transportationlaw.net. That is transportationlaw.net. Uh, there's all kind of contact information on there, and there's also this website is a wealth of knowledge. You can spend all day long just going on this website and arming yourself with uh, material. But with no further ado, let's bring on our special guest, Mr. Hank Seaton. Hank, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Good evening, Rico. Good evening. Good evening. So tonight, um, I've seen some a couple of things that were going on on some uh, stuff online, and I thought that maybe we could start out tonight and maybe talk a little bit about lease purchase contracts. Um, sure. I've seen some people that, that it's kind of, uh, you know, getting into the trucking business. Uh, people are sometimes wanting to, wanting a quick fix, wanting a shortcut. And, uh, and I, I tell people just really be careful and really read those uh, contracts. A lot of times, they won't even let you see the contract until after you've already got it kind of already got you in the glue. Um, but maybe you can uh, shed a little bit of light, a little bit more light on, on that situation and talk about uh, just some of the things that we really ought to be mindful of or some things that we might want to look for in those contracts. Sure. There are really, I guess, two basic types of lease purchase uh, contracts. Uh, one is a facility that's offered by the used truck market. Uh, uh, let's say you'll have a program truck that will come off uh, uh, a lease to a major uh, company, have uh, maybe three to 500,000 miles at the turn in, and the used truck market will uh, then make it available to an owner-operator on a lease-to-own basis. Uh, uh, those programs can be set up as uh, as track leases uh, uh, or in various fashions. Uh, frequently, the uh, lessor will uh, keep the title, and you'll be making lease payments for uh, a certain period of time, usually tracking to a residual that will allow you to, if it's done properly, buy out the uh, uh, the equity in the company and uh, in the lease and short short circuit the leases uh, uh, at any time to get off of the payment. It's usually an amortization schedule that uh, is uh, just like a mortgage on a house, except uh, uh, it's uh, a mortgage on a truck. Uh, a second way in which that's done is uh, typically a trucking company that may have program trucks. Uh, may through its uh, own operations as a carrier or through a leasing affiliate to turn around and make trucks available to qualified owner-operators 
uh, usually there's a tie-in relationship when that occurs, uh, which says, uh, you know, we'll be happy to lease you this truck with the uh, option to purchase it uh, uh, with the uh, notion that you'll then turn around and sign an owner-operator agreement uh, with the carrier to uh, lease it back to the motor carrier. Uh, it's in the uh, best interest of a motor carrier to uh, uh, use the availability of its used equipment to attract qualified owner-operators, and there are pluses and minuses of those of those relationships as well. I'd be happy to take anybody's question on what to uh, look for in those agreements. Uh, I think typically, uh, at least from my uh, position, the owner-operator model is a, is a way that a working man can, uh, if they work hard and manage an asset well, uh, build equity in the truck and have a, a piece of the American dream. So I'm very, very pro uh, uh, utilizing that for a person who wants to be ambitious. It's usually someone who uh, uh, doesn't mind working hard for a living, but also probably has some mechanical ability to take care of the truck and to manage the asset. Uh, if done right, uh, uh, you know, a person can start with one truck and build a fleet of trucks and uh, uh, and and be able to. Uh, share in the game, uh, but there are indeed some horror stories as well, uh, uh, you know, typically when a truck will break down or if you improvidently sign a bad lease to own agreement uh, with an improper party who takes advantage of you, that can be a problem as well. Right, yeah, I've, I've seen, some, in some cases, you know, it, it seems like some of these companies that do a lot of these lease purchases, um, it, it almost seems like they almost would probably make more money selling trucks than than they do moving freight uh, because they seem to sell the same truck maybe five or six times over. Uh, it seems to be more people that fail at those leases than, than complete them. Uh, um, yeah, I have, I, have, I have indeed seen that too. Um, you know, I've been blessed by working with uh, uh, some companies that have a very... Uh, a very proactive attitude. They, uh, uh, they want to see the uh, independent contractor be their their logistics partner. They they need people who can uh, help them uh, uh, share the burden of handling the freight. And uh, uh, the last thing they want to do is to see an unhappy independent contractor have to go out and and replevin in the truck and. Uh, have the independent contractor get upside down on the lease payments, and uh, that's really a, a spiral of death not only for the owner-operator but also for the motor carrier. Uh, I think if looked at correctly by the motor carrier, the independent contractor is a way to obtain additional capacity and, and frankly, to get better utility out of, the, out of used equipment because I think it's a, a proven study that uh, an independent uh, contractor who has uh, got skin in the game is going to take better care of, uh, of older equipment, get better miles out of it, and if, uh, if they are good business, then be able to manage that asset better than uh, a green rookie driver will take care of it. And I just want to remind all the callers uh, that are on the line that if you have any questions whatsoever, go ahead and press 1. That will put you in the queue and we will come to you so you can ask your very own question 
of Mr. Seaton while we have him with us tonight. We have him for one hour, and uh, we want to make sure we try to get all of your questions on. And with that said, we do have one question that's coming in, a uh, caller from the area code 701. Caller, I don't have a screener tonight, but what's your name and where are you calling from and how can we help? Hey, Rico, it's Sean. I'm in Canada. And you're talking about lease purchases. How uh, I... Yes, sir. Well, well, we just started off with that, but you can, you can go wherever you want to go. Okay, well, on the lease purchases, how do they still get drivers get tied up into these when we know they've been around since the 90s and they still get tied up into them? Uh, Rico, can you repeat the question? I couldn't quite hear Canada calling. Uh, try it again, Sean. Okay. How is it that these lease purchases have been around since the 80s and the 90s and drivers still get caught up into them? as bad as they are. Well, you know, I'm sorry to hear your uh, hear your perception of them. Uh, I, I think it's kind of like buying a used car. There's some that are very good and there's some that are very bad. Uh, 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 clearly, the Internet is full of horror stories of people who have... Uh, uh, have not had a successful experience with an independent contractor. I think a part of the beginning of the process would be to uh, uh, check out uh, the if it's a carrier provided a piece of equipment. Check out the reputation of the carrier. Uh, ask them. Uh, uh, you know, maybe interview the guys on the road that actually are part of the lease purchase agreement to see what. Uh, uh, what their experience has been. Uh, clearly, the ones, some of the ones that I have seen that have gone bad have been situations in which the independent contractor is certainly responsible for the repairs and maintenance on the truck. Trucks broke down, need the major overhaul. They have to don't have a maintenance reserve. Uh, uh, obviously, a uh, uh, truck's broken down for a period of time and can't make the payments to get upside down. It ends up being a, 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 a lose situation for it. And so I think some of that uh, results from uh, the independent contractor not really having any uh, uh, any maintenance reserve. Uh, the, uh, you know, I think the important thing to do is it is in any business where you're operating a depreciable asset or one that can... Uh, 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 cause you problems is to set up a maintenance reserve <coughs> and not 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 spend uh, uh, the amount of every uh, 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 of every settlement uh, without recognizing that you are going to incur some cost. Uh, you know, I've often thought that uh, an owner operator uh, needs to look at a lease purchase agreement as if he's going into business. And he needs to uh, uh, to have a firm handle on what it takes to be a success in the business of of, uh, of leasing trucks to own because uh, uh, it's different than being an employee driver. Uh, one thing I could say that I think is uh, is true: uh, the uh, I've heard the argument made that uh, people are forced into being independent contractors. Uh, with the uh, current change in uh, 
in freight availability and the driver shortage, I don't think there's anyone who can, uh, who's got a decent enough uh, driving record to be hired that's forced into uh, doing a lease to own uh, uh, project. Uh, if it's not your cup of tea, if you don't feel as though you're uh, uh, able to uh, to enter it and to uh, uh, share in the profit and take the risk, then maybe you should be a fleet driver. I think there's going to be uh, income to be made with that. It, it sure is certainly less risky than being an independent contractor. But no, uh, I think... Go ahead. I think there's a difference between a lease purchase and an owner-operator. An owner-operator can get his own financing. The reason people go into lease purchases is that they can't get the financing, and they take the easy way out, but they end up losing it because they've got far too much debt on the books. They're buying way too much of a truck, and the revenue is just not there on the lease purchase. Where if you're an owner-operator, you get to choose what truck you want to buy, how you want to finance it, and you control everything. And we purchase the company you keep the truck from controls everything. Well, you know, you are certainly you are certainly uh, correct. Uh, it, it's somewhat similar to if you're going to go uh, uh, buy a, a a new home or a new car. The amount of money that you have down is uh, is certainly going to help. And I agree with you that uh, there are people who have no money down uh, lease purchase agreements that uh, uh, makes it more difficult for them to see their to see the end of the day. You got to realize that there are people that are uh, are selling lease to own trucks uh, to people that are, are uh, whose credit is substandard, uh, and uh, you know the fact that people may uh, may not have uh, the greatest credit. Uh, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, uh, they uh, can't be a success at being an independent contractor, but clearly you should shop that. Uh, I don't think uh, anybody should feel as though they should be sold a bill of goods. Uh, uh, I have looked at two or three independent contractor uh, agreements here in the past month, uh, including company-sponsored programs and used truck programs, uh, and uh, I have seen some that I would not recommend anyone to sign because they're uh, they're rigged to fail. Uh, the expenses, the the, uh, uh, the amount of money that the uh, the lessor is trying to make out, the the absence of any real credit towards the purchase of a substantial portion of the money means that uh, you're going to be paying and paying and paying without ever getting the the pink slip to the truck. So, you know, it's not a regulated industry. The amount that you're paying for the truck, the amount down, is all subject to negotiation, and it is a buyer beware situation. But, uh, you know, similarly, I could, uh, uh, with a a high degree of confidence, uh, uh, recommend, uh, uh, you know, some clients that uh, uh, make... uh, Used equipment available to folks with strong driving records and uh, and uh, uh, who who don't have a whole lot of capital in the bank and they're they're very happy and make a a big uh, a big deal about uh, having an alumni list of people who have uh, graduated through the first truck and put on the second and the third. So uh, 
to say that the model itself is a, is a problem, I, I'm not sure I, I can buy into. Uh, you know, if you've got to, if you've got money in your jeans, you can buy a Ferrari if you want to. If you don't, you may have to have a, an age four. So uh, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, in the capitalistic system, that's kind of the way it uh, kind of the way it works. Uh, I think you know there is there is a sweet spot for trucks, and I'm not a, I'm not a mechanic, but uh, if you have a well maintained uh, uh, fleet truck. Uh, of course, the cost of new trucks has gone up so much. It, uh, by the time they get out to the owner-operator fleet, they typically have more miles on it and more expense than was the old days. People could uh, create a creative budget, see how much the truck was going to cost, what their 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 markup for being an owner-operator was, and uh, you know, over the period of 36 months, uh, uh, you know, have an asset that. Uh, then the payments are going to go away, and there's going to be some money and some residual in the bank. Uh, but that is, uh, you know, uh, be a businessman, you need to go into it with your eyes wide open, I believe. Right. That's the, that's. I think that's the, the hitting the nail on the head, and that's something that I'm, I'm really trying to get everybody that uh, considering doing lease purchases. Uh, there's good and bad in everything, but I think that you need to have all of the information and all the options that are going on inside of that lease purchase, you need to know that it is a bilateral contract and that they should possibly counsel. Just like you could walk away, you know, you hear about the walk-away lease. Well, I mean, what's to stop the company from walking away from you and, and just counseling your contract and, and taking the lease back? I, I just think that those are some of the things that, that people just need to be aware of. Yeah, there, um, there's one thing that you've mentioned here uh, that is... Uh, uh, in terms of a, a, a lease-to-own agreement uh, that I would advise uh, anyone who's who's listening to look for. It's it's what's called portability. And, you know, if you're leasing a truck by or through a company or if a company is guaranteeing to the owner of the truck that he'll withhold the, uh, the payments from your settlement as, as a condition of the purchase, you need to have in the lease the uh, uh, the provision that says that if the lease is canceled for any reason uh, or if you're unhappy with the guarantor, the motor carrier is guaranteeing the withholding for any reason, that you've got portability. And by portability, I mean the ability for the depreciated value. And every month you make a lease payment, you're going to make a $1,300 lease payment and uh, a thousand of that goes towards the principal, then that means the truck can be purchased for a thousand less dollars the next month. That at any time you can uh, uh, purchase the uh, uh, the truck for the then remaining residual. So in that way, if you've taken good care of the truck and you've built equity, but you just set up with the independent con with the carrier you're leased onto, or for whatever reason. Uh, of that relationship's not working out, uh, and you've got some equity in the truck, let's say you want to run local. You can say, uh, here's my notice that I want to uh, buy the truck for the remaining equity. So that it's, uh, uh, it's not a situation of which you're a slave to the company for 36 months, and at the end of the day, uh, two weeks before you've got the pink slip, they can cancel it and say, uh, sorry, guy, uh, 
you don't have any equity or, or beat you out of the fact that you're, uh, uh, you're building value and making those payments. Right, and we got another question here calling in from the 803. That, that's South Carolina. Uh, Caller, uh, what's your name, and uh, you're hanging with Hank. Oh, yeah, hi. This is Melissa Viroff, and um, hi, how are you all? Uh, I had a I had a situation today, and I I was wondering what I would do, you know, if uh, if it didn't get resolved. Like, um, I have uh, like an appointment time to deliver tomorrow morning at eight, and when I called the consignee, they had no idea I was coming, and they were like asking me if I could deliver Monday, and I, and I got panicky. I'm like, wow. You know, it's um, just one of the huge air conditioning units that weighs about 6,000 pounds. And it does require, like what he told me, it requires the air conditioning people to come and take it. So, you know, my broker was supposed to, they gave me an appointment. And, um, you know, <laughs> I called the broker and, you know, he wasn't aware of it. And the man at the, the uh, delivery site was like, saying that he was going to call these other people and see if they can unload me tomorrow. So that's where it stands. And I'm like, you know, if I have to sit here, it would cost, I already got a load, booked load for like to pick up and deliver tomorrow. I mean, it would cost, I mean, I would lose that. And plus, you know, all that time. And I told him like, you know, detention time and each day would cost me money. So, you know, that's where I'm standing. I mean, how do I protect myself? You know, if they say, oh, you got to wait and we'll pay you like $200 a day or $300 a day, you know, it's, up. you know, it's kind of like there's no one out there that, that can back me up. Well, did you have a, uh, did the, the broker tell you you had an appointment for delivery in the morning at 8 o'clock? Yeah, and it's on the, the paperwork. The, the, the it says they're 8 o'clock. You had, <laughs> the broker told you you had a, a delivery appointment at 8 o'clock. Right. All right, what you, what you need to do is, uh, uh, obviously, the broker uh, in your contract, you don't have any provision for mandatory detention, but what you do is... Uh, if you've got uh, if you've got an ability, you need to issue what's called an on-hand notice to the broker and to the consignee. Oh. And I can give you the language; it's very simple. It says, okay. "I have on hand, ready for delivery at eight right. o'clock a.m. Uh, Six thousand pounds of air conditioning unit." <laughs> consigned to your location in Charleston, period. If not unloaded by 10 a.m., I will place the load in a warehouse location uh -huh. subject, to, subject to my transportation lien and all storage costs. Right. <laughs> now, what you do is you uh, uh, be prepared to show up and tell them that you want to be paid, uh, you know, cash when you unload it. Show up. If they get you off by 10, that's good. If not, you need to find a place to uh, uh, someone who can unload and store that, uh, uh, that machinery for you right. and release it when you get paid because... Uh, 
Tomorrow is Thursday. Nobody can expect you to stay over until Monday's unload that. And by putting it by putting it in writing that you have attempted delivery and you're available for delivery on time, you have a basis for asserting your transportation lien. There's a statute for that. It's uh, 80101, which says that you can uh, put it in storage and get get paid. And they'll have to pay the storage fees as well. Now, you know, if you're an independent contractor and you're uh, a small carrier and you're six states over, you may need some help finding uh, a warehouse who will take it. But, uh, you know, your broker at this point needs to move heaven and earth to get that load off for you. Uh-huh. All right. That's great. Thank you very much. I will look into Sure. You're that. welcome. All right. Now, Hank, I got a, I got a follow up on, on based on that question. Well, based on the answer that you just gave her. Um, now, going back to your book, and I advise anybody if you don't have Hank's book, go out and get it. Protect your motor carrier's interest in contract. Um, the very first, one of the very first deadly sins that you you warned us about is a waiver of statutes and regulations when when dealing with customers prepared contract. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of uh, TIA prepare contracts and, and other things, um, uh, other broker um, uh, uh, regu- regulatory, well, not direct, not necessarily regulatory, but, but the other broker associations like the TIA um, have it in their standardized contracts that you are going to waive uh, any any um, 49 US, USC 1401. That you they they waive you waive all of your rights and provisions under those uh and, and also Cormac. Um, does that still stand? What you just the advice that you just gave out would that still stand up against that? If she waived, if she waived all of her rights, uh, she may very well uh, uh, end up having someone saying you can't do that. But as a practical matter, she can't sit around until Monday to to resolve the issue. You know, right. let's look at it this way. Uh, she wouldn't have taken the load but for the fact that the broker rec- uh, represented to her that the shipment would be accepted for delivery at 8 a.m. Once that load is wrongfully rejected, and that's what the, the uh, on-hand notice does, it says, I'm going to be there at 8. If you wrongfully reject the load, what is she supposed to do with the load? I don't think that waiver of uh, uh, that waiver of a lien uh, key, uh, says that uh, the result is uh, you will uh, sit on a load until Jesus comes and not be paid for it either. So, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I think that the, the wrongful rejection uh, of the load by the consignee for whatever reason he wasn't prepared to accept it at 8 o'clock creates a problem. Uh, the reason that I suggested to the caller this in writing is because uh, all too frequently one of these things will get derailed and it'll be he said, you said, they said afterwards. That's why you, you give them notice, but you give them a reasonable time to get it unloaded. Uh, that's why I mentioned the two hours since the guy from the warehouse comes running out and says, look, uh, I'm going to need it. I'll, I'll go get a crane or whatever. Maybe you give them some, uh, you give them some uh, 
some leverage, but you have to put it in writing. And uh, I believe even under the TIA contract, in other words, when they talk about waiver of liens, what they're talking about is people who are holding loads, uh, taking them home and holding them and saying, now I've got some kind of outrageous re-delivery charge. That's why the idea is that, you know, you ordinarily uh, put the distressed merchandise in a commercial warehouse and you go on about your business. Okay. okay. But you, you, raise, you, you raise a good point, uh, Rico, and that's yet another issue. If you are a carrier, you've got to watch what you sign. Uh, I am in, involved in a situation uh, this weekend in which a uh, client has called me and said that a major shipper uh, is, uh, is faced with bankruptcy uh, and owes them a substantial amount of money, and what recourse do they have? I asked the client to let me see the contract that they signed, and the contract they signed reserved their lien rights, including a spreading lien, the ability to hold freight charges for delinquent, uh, or to hold freight for delinquent freight charges past and present. And fortunately, I was able to tell that client you have a lien that you can enforce uh, to get paid. Now, if that same client had improvidently signed a typical contract, uh, they would just be going down with the ship. So you're mm. subject to what you sign, and you need to watch what you sign. Right, right. And this is why this is another great benefit. I'm glad that you know that you come on with us and you spend a little time with us so that, you know, us small guys can have access to, to someone, uh, you know, we're not just dealing with lunch counter talk. We have, you know, you are a trained attorney, and this is your field of profession, and so we have someone that we can come to now and ask these pertinent questions that deal with our business because a lot of times smaller guys, you know, uh, we, we just, you know, we just kind of wing it for lack of a better term. And, and, uh, and what we are committed to doing with this podcast is trying to equip everyone that is tuning in with the tools to help not only increase their bottom line, but also become a much better business person and a much more knowledgeable business person. Um, one thing that I, there's another question I wanted to, run the scenario over to you that I was looking at on Facebook. Uh, someone posted this, and I don't have all the details. I'm just going to read it how they posted it. And uh wanted to get, you know, just kind of get, throw this one at you and see what you think about this. Uh, this person writes that they received a claim for $700 from C.H. Robinson of a pallet of strawberries that was exposed to a 40-degree temperature for a couple of hours that they were in good shape but they wanted to reject the two pallets because the recorder, let's see, on the protest, the customer received them on the protest. Uh, they wanted to reject them because they had got out of range at the 40-degree temperature base. Um, but the customer had already sold one of the two pallets, so they took that pallet back, and C.H. Robinson informed them that they wanted to help them out and for him to leave the other pallet there. And four months later, C.H. Robson has came back to him and uh, is, try is charging him for $700 for the, for the one pallet. I'm not sure I exactly got uh, uh, got all of, the, all of the facts. There were two pallets that were allegedly temperature distressed. One of them was sold, and there was no claim 
The other one, C.H. Robinson, said, leave with the consignee, and uh, some three or four months later, they get a claim. Uh, there's uh, apparently no uh, indication of what happened to the second pallet and uh, uh, whether or not the temperature being out of round made the uh, 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 strawberries unsellable. Is that, the, is that basically the facts? Yes, sir. So uh, basically, I guess how if, if something if someone finds himself somewhat in a similar situation, how should these situations be handled uh, in, a, in a scenario kind of similar to that? There's no good way. Uh, the transportation of fresh produce is a very very difficult situation. Uh, most large uh, produce uh, or uh, brokers who deal in produce reserve by contract the unilateral right of offset. And uh, what has happened in this situation is they will offset that $700 against the small carrier. And they will pretty much accept their commercial grocery house's uh, word that uh, the product was contaminated. There'll be no USDA inspection or no report on those uh, $700 worth of uh, strawberries. There'd be very little appeal. Uh, if pushed, the broker will probably have <coughs> made some effort <coughs> to verify that the uh, grocery house, in fact, uh, uh, either dumped the, uh, the strawberries or sold them on the distressed market. But there's no way I can tell a small carrier that he can bring a suit uh, and, uh, and and get anywhere for $700. Uh, it's it's part of the, uh, of, of the risk of the transportation. I wish it were otherwise. Uh, obviously, in fresh vegetables and fruits, uh, it's not governed by Carmack. It's not governed by uh, the fact that the shipper has to has to prove uh, uh, actual damage. We know that there are uh, the blue book and the red book uh, and informal mediation services that try to currently compromise that. Uh, one could go to the, the the blue book or the red book and probably establish whether. Uh, the temperature of strawberries being at 40 degrees for two hours could possibly result in deterioration of strawberries. I don't know the answer to that question, but uh, if I were going to defend the case, that's the first thing I would do to call an expert and say, all right, look, the only basis for rejecting this was it was out of temperature around at 40 degrees for two hours, what does that do to strawberries? If I could get someone who would offer an affidavit that says that alone uh, uh, doesn't lead to uh, uh, lawful rejection of the load, I would uh, probably contest it. At the end of the day, is that going to get a substantial uh, truck broker to change their mind and not deduct it? I don't know. But if you had a couple of zeros to that claim, uh, it might be uh, certainly worth litigating, and at that point, I would get an expert to uh, to talk about uh, uh, whether uh, two degrees or three degrees of temperature could create uh, 
uh, uh, uh, to diminish the value of the strawberries. I will mention in this case, there is something going on with those of you who transport uh, uh, refrigerated commodities. There are pending FDA rules that are being promulgated that virtually everyone in the industry is opposing that would uh, impose much stricter temperature controls as a matter of law on uh, on produce and would, under the auspices that a shipment could be uh, uh, contaminated, require the destruction of a whole lot of product uh, for uh, temperature damage. It's now accepted and perfectly well sold. So <clears throat> if anything, that whole industry is going to get uh, more difficult to serve. I think uh, over time, people are going to have to have better recording devices and trucks. They're going to have to be sure that uh, uh, they they pulp the product they take uh, even more strictly than they do now. So, Rico, I haven't given you the answer you want, but I, I think I've given you a practical one. If it's $700 worth of strawberries, you're probably going to have to and make it up on the next load. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, we don't necessarily, we may not like the answer, but hey, at least by us asking the question, at least now we know. Um, I would have, put it this way. I would have an unhappy client if they called me and said, go find a lawyer somewhere in America to take on a $700 claim and think they weren't going to end up uh, paying more than they were going to get out of the, out of the transaction. The legal system just can't deal with it. Right, right. Got a caller calling in from the 585 area code. Caller, what's your name? You're hanging with Hank tonight. Hey, Rico and Henry, it's George Heck. How are you? Hey, Fine, George, George. Good to have you on. Well, yeah, luckily you can hear me. I didn't go to the Royals game, but uh, this city, I'm in Kansas City, and boy, they're, they're pumped up tonight here. <laughs> yeah. But, um, um, Henry, question for you. With regards to that, with the claims, he talked about uh, the gentleman, or the, the, the question was about, was it two months later they came and put in the claim? What is the current statute of limitations for putting in the claim? When I was in LPL, it was 90 days. Is that still accurate? Uh, no, it's, it's not. Uh, by statute, you have nine months to file a claim. Nine months. Uh, now, by contract... But is that whether you have a clear DR or, or a marked DR or not? A lot of people have a lot of LTL carriers. This may be where you're coming from. A lot of LTL carriers will have a concealed damage rule, which says okay. that if they have a clear DR, uh, the shipper's got 15 days to file a claim or something like that. But that really doesn't relate to the time for filing the claim. That kind of relates to the presumption. There is a presumption that if you get a clear DR when you deliver the shipment, that the shipment is delivered intact. And a consignee has to overcome that presumption by showing that uh, with a preponderance of the evidence that the loss or damage occurred in transit. So. That 15-day rule is what uh, I see most often in the LTL carriers relates to concealed damages. But the the statute says, let's say I got a bad DR. A bad uh, DR isn't a claim. 
but it is evidence of damage. And any receiver or shipper or even a broker is entitled to put in a claim. That doesn't mean, you know, you as a carrier need to approve it. No, of course not. For payment. No, you know, of I mean, not. the reason, but the reason what I'm I saying is what, what I, the point I'm the point I'm making is uh, the uh, the federal statute that applies to regulated commodities says that the carrier can establish a period of time of no less than nine months for the filing of a proper claim. Now, when you get off into air and other modes, there are different time limits, but it's nine months for canned goods and manufactured goods. And that doesn't mean that that means that the claim is timely. It doesn't mean it has to be approved. Still argue, uh, hey, I didn't cause the damage. It was inherent vice. It was act or omission of the shipper. It's one of the exceptions. And moreover, the the bent box doesn't mean that uh, contents was uh, was totally destroyed. Correct. Well, well, let me let me let me ask you this also. Then, what about the receiver that likes to receive their shipments? I I, I had this when I was in LTL sales for many years. They wanted to sign the DR subject to inspection, and we got to the point of if you have a problem, you open the box and inspect it and tell us what's damaged and note it on the DR. Otherwise, you can't sign it that way. Uh, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Uh, uh, and you know, I have had, I have had clients have that same discussion with the company that if you don't inspect it, uh, when the driver is there, it's going to be considered as if it's delivered in good order. Okay. Yep. Well, that's uh, that's kind of more of what I, I just I just want people to understand that there may there's not just because somebody submits a claim doesn't mean you have to pay it. You run it as your business and you run it run your process of you know due diligence on your part. It's still covering your side of the business. Yeah, and and one of the most frustrating things in terms of claims is what I call reject it, crush it, and dump it, and that is that. A consignee will reject the shipment, but uh, uh, either the consignee or the consignor will very quickly claim that it's uh, damaged beyond repair and crush it. Uh, particularly in the uh, foodstuff industry, they'll say it could be contaminated. And you, the carrier, and the carrier's insurance company never has a chance to actually examine the shipment and there's no mitigation of the damages. And that violates all kinds of plain rules. You know, I've had uh, loads of ice cream where uh, you deliver it and they'd open up the rear doors and the hot Memphis sun and the back two uh, uh, pallets would show some deterioration, some melted ice cream, and all of a sudden they say, well, we're going to destroy all 22 pallets. Uh, you know, that's bad claims procedure. And, you know, it's important that the carrier uh, fight for the right to inspect the goods and insist the damages be mitigated. Well, I guess one thing I would also, and I obviously I don't think we can go back and ask, but regarding the, the individual that had the question on the the $700 claim of strawberries, I guess I would like to know, have they been already paid for the freight bill? If they had been, they could easily just 
deny the claim and move on, but it could jeopardize their relationship with the broker. Yeah, but, if but they're not you know, paid on the plate, the, though, the fact, and it's a 3000 Yeah, the, and the fact of the matter is, those large brokers have long memories. And, you know, if you're willing... If you're if you're willing to uh, deny the claim, but to uh, say come get me, then you you need to be prepared not ever to handle a load for that broker again. Well, fortunately for me, that's not an issue. Less than one percent of my business is broker free. Okay, you are a blessed man. Uh, I like to think so. Um, I'm having a great, uh, great time with this. I have two years in business, and uh, Rico and I have talked a ton, and I, I'm just I'm having the time of my life. I, I haven't had this much fun in 25 years. It's great. <laughs> so, well, I'll let you guys go on unless, Rico, you, you got anything else or anything I can help with, and, uh, you know, just doing a great job. Well, we appreciate the phone call, George. We got one more person on the line. We're going to try to squeeze them in. We've got about seven minutes left in the, in the show. Actually, we just had a couple more people jump on. So, uh, yeah, well, we appreciate the call, George. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk to All you, All right, let's, let's jump over to caller from the 864. Caller, you're hanging with Hank. What's your name and what's your question? Uh-oh, that caller dropped. All right, let's go to caller calling in from the 714 area code. Uh Carlo, you're hanging with Hank. What's your name and what's your question? Hey, this is uh, John. And uh, hey. Hank or Henry? Hank or Henry? Hank's fine. Hank, okay. If uh, it seems that the the read for business is so problematic, why do so many people still do it? <laughs> you got a good question. You got a good question. I know. You know. I think. There, I think there are two. I think there are two issues, maybe that uh, that define it. Uh, first of all, I think there are a lot of uh, uh, of drivers who have experience on the farm and have uh, uh, have come up in the have come up in the industry, uh, the produce industry, particularly is dominated by a lot of small carriers. Uh, and uh, I don't know why that is, but that's historic uh, in nature. There's a well-developed system of truck brokers and small carriers. And when business is good, it's really good. I think that the rates, the rates that people pay and, the, and their, their ability to follow the produce and the season uh, may mean that if you cross your fingers and don't get hung with a bad claim, you can make better than average money in the in the manufactured industry. But <coughs> and, and nothing is more frustrating to me than a lawyer <coughs> to have to try to help somebody who has been stung by a produce claim. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, all right. Thank all right. You. Thank you. Well, uh, Mr. Seaton, I think that uh, one thing that we got a few more minutes left here in the, in the uh, live podcast. If anybody has to get in, just press one. Um, but I think that one thing I wanted to kind of close out on, I, I wanted to touch on, uh, I, we didn't get a chance to get over into that, but I was going to uh, also broach the subject about factoring and about and, and the factoring agreements, things like that. All of which 
you go over a good bit of it in depth in the uh, protected motor carrier's interest in the contract. And uh, like I said before earlier, if you don't have that book, please uh, go to transportationlaw.net and you can get the ebook version of that book on through the through the website there. But uh, with as much freight that there's available out there right now, I think it will serve people very well that are motor carriers to actually start going out and uh, trying to secure direct freight like George was just talking about, uh, you know, being able to try to secure that direct freight so that you can have more control over the whole contractual process and you, and you kind of have a better feel of what you are bargaining for versus dealing with uh, and, and these broker agreements that, you know, we, we kind of sign trying to get the loads moved and everything, and we kind of do everything um, in a flash so that, you know, it, the, the, the speed of the process of business trying to, you know, well, let me, I, I'll try to get it back to you within the next 15 minutes, and you're signing, in some instances, 21-page um, uh, agreements that you're not possibly reading every line that, as well as you probably should be, and even if you are, uh, not really understanding what it is that you're trying. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you're, I think you're actually uh, you're, you're you're very uh, very spot on with that. You know, we've got a very well developed transactional platform, whether it be the the, the load boards or whatever, that uh, attempt to put uh, small carriers together with brokers of both large and small uh, in a in a spot market where People are signing documents with folks they don't know to move shipments. They're not sure even what the contents are. And that makes for a very risky business. I think clearly uh, to the extent that you uh, uh, can uh, be your own salesman and get some of that hometown freight going and coming uh, in, in, in narrower corridors, you're probably uh, better set to avoid uh, uh, claims uh, and, uh, and and freight payments problems than you are when you're uh, in Omaha one day and Phoenix the next and uh, working with Broker A today and Broker B tomorrow and who knows, maybe there are three or four hidden brokers in the transactions. So, uh, yeah, obviously uh, George is having the fun and only got 1% broker load managed to find his own customers is indeed a blessed man. Yes, yes. George is, uh, he's got a very, uh, really unique business model going on. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we try to lean on George and, and glean some information because he has a sales background, uh, in the LTL industry. And, and one of the things that which, you know, as being a business owner, uh, is we're always selling regardless of what it, what it is. We're always selling. And since we're always selling, uh, we want to always be trying to go out and, and get that direct customer. But we got about 60 seconds left in the show, Hank. Do uh, you got anything you want to say in wrapping up or closing out before we uh, run out of airtime? Uh, no, not really, other than uh, one thing that uh, we need to be watching for is in the next couple of weeks, the FMCSA is going to release a proposal to increase the amount of uh, liability insurance that each motor carrier must carry. I don't know whether it's going to go from 750 to a million six or to two million, but that will have a direct impact on cost, and that cost may be particularly borne by your small carriers 
So it would be interesting to be something for us to look out for, and maybe as soon as uh, the dollar amount is released for people to get some idea of the increased cost, because we will be making a, a plea back to the regulators that uh, an increase in uh, the amount of insurance carriers must carry will have a direct flow-down effect on small carriers. Wow. Okay. So everybody, so uh, they're going to be releasing that. So, but but that's going to be in the. We have an opportunity it'll, to. It'll uh, be in the. It'll be in the form of a proposal for rules. So, uh, industry uh, uh, will be able to comment on that. And uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people suspect that uh, uh, that the burden will fall particularly on the small carrier, since uh, by and large the large carriers. Uh, uh, you know, already carrying multi-million dollars worth of coverage. And, uh, you know, we have had some people say that it'll maybe only affect it an additional thousand dollars a unit. Some other people are saying it may be three or four thousand dollars a unit, which becomes real. Yes, yeah, yeah, sir. Even that thousand, uh, in some instances, is going to, you know, uh, in, in this industry, we're working off very thin margins as it is, and. Uh, I think that's going to, you know, put put even more pressure on the rate uh, and on the shippers and everything else as well. So uh, that's good to know. We need to be keep make sure we keep our eyes open for that and be looking for that. And uh, real okay. real quick, uh, real quick before we let you go, uh, just checking in with you how how you come along on the second book. Uh, I've got about uh, the the first fifty of what's going to be about two hundred and twenty pages proofread. So that's what I'm doing the rest of this week. All right, all right. So it may be first of the year, maybe? Yeah, I, I hope so. I'd like to have it out by Christmas time. All right, all right. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate you spending some time with us tonight. Uh, Mr. Okay. on the Race Playing Podcast. And uh, I'll be shooting you over that information that we talked about before. And we thank you again. All right. It's good talking to you guys. Right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-PUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.